Welcome to Spot on Safety, the program designed for safety professionals. Spot on Safety is brought to you by iWorkWise, providing safety knowledge when you need it. For more information about iWorkWise, go to iWorkWise.com. Welcome to Spawn on Safety, Episode 27, Compressed Gases, with your host, Amy Does and Dan Smiley. Good morning, Amy. Hey, good morning, Dan. It's time for another podcast, and today's topic is compressed gases. Maybe you could start off with giving us a definition of what exactly a compressed gas is. Well, probably the easiest way to think about it is use the DOT definition of compressed gas, and that means um, it's there's a gas or a mixture of gases in a container where the pressure uh, is over 25 pounds per square inch gauge. So if we put a gauge on the container, um, it would have more than 25 pounds of pressure in the container. That would be a compressed gas. Can you give us an example of some of the common gases that we might find in the workplace? Well, you often see these gases um, used for welding and cutting. So uh, you'll see argon, uh, which is a compressed gas used for welding. You'll see oxygen um, and acetylene. You can also see them in medical kits for oxygen for, uh, for first aid purposes. Um, you also see them in large systems like refrigeration systems. So those systems will have ammonia and freon, and they're um, they they're compressed gases essentially. So um, a- another one might be in, one you might even have at home is propane for your barbecue, or propane for forklifts in the workplace. So they're um, they're around and fairly common. You're right, I do. I have a big propane cylinder on my barbecue and a little one for a tiny cutting torch in the basement. So what are the what would be some of the hazards? Why has OSHA decided to regulate compressed gases? Well, compressed gases, um, there's, there's uh, quite a bit of background on it where they have been kind of regulated or there's been rules about safe handling of compressed gases um, for a very long time. So even back as in the in the 40s and 50s, we have the Compressed Gas Association, who uh, they've generated pamphlets, and um, and interestingly, OSHA's compressed gas rules are actually quite short in the general industry standard. Um, they have 1910-101, and it just says you know you're going to handle them in accordance with the Compressed Gas Association pamphlet P1. So they're they're incorporating those pamphlets by reference into the OSHA standards. And a lot of these pamphlets are old, like the one OSHA incorporates is the 1965 Compressed Gas uh, Association pamphlet. Something that's interesting about that is let's say you were to call the Compressed Gas Association uh, to get that pamphlet because you wanted to know the rules you're supposed to follow. And they wouldn't have that. They wouldn't sell that to you anymore because that's an old version. They would want to sell you the new version. So I have one of these uh, P1 1965 pamphlets, and I'll tell you, it treated it like gold. It's valuable. You can you can really see uh, what exactly OSHA incorporated by reference. Otherwise, they're kind of hard to get. Why? Why didn't they when they the Compressed Gas Association update to a newer version? If they knew that OSHA was completely relying on that old version, why didn't they incorporate all of that, or did they? 
Well, I think that they, uh, I think that they have moved forward since 1965, maybe with some thinking around safety of compressed gases, and they want people to be following the newer, newer science. And meanwhile, we have OSHA, who is, uh, who, who is an organization basically that has some political things they have to deal with. So when they, uh, when the OSHA Act was passed, passed in 1970, uh, they had a year or two to uh, incorporate things into the OSHA standards. Um, they grabbed everything they could to make them the first regulations, and it's really hard for them to change the rules once they get made. So it's not unusual to see a 20-year rulemaking process where OSHA is working on updating a standard and doesn't get to do it for years and years. Are they, to your knowledge, trying to update this standard? No, not that I know of. Um, the, the 65 rules kind of incorporate uh, the most common issues. Um, companies can follow the newer ones if they'd like to. Um, but I, I don't think that this one is, is a big one on the radar as far as I know. Other than these uh, compressed gas pamphlets that OSHA refers to, is there anywhere else in the standard where OSHA regulates compressed gases? Uh, they, yeah, they have a little, they have some regulations in the shipyard standard, so 1915. So for maritime, um, they've incorporated some actual rules instead of just referring to the pamphlets, but that's about it. Well, what are some of the hazards that are involved around compressed gases in their use and storage and testing and whatnot? Uh, well, some of the rules, it's, it's interesting because there aren't really any written requirements um, like so many OSHA standards for these rules. You do have to have labels on the container or placard the storage areas. And sometimes people think, oh, it's enough because my cylinder is red. Red means acetylene or it's brown and that means argon. But sometimes nitrogen cylinders are brown also or argon cylinders are blue. So usually oxygen cylinders are green, but that's not enough. You're supposed to maintain the DOT labels that come on the necks of these cylinders, um, and those those can come off in weather and whatnot. So if you have some without, the, your area should be placarded where those things are stored. But there aren't any really written requirements related to that. Um, as far as training requirements go, there isn't really anything specific. You don't have to document you've done any training this is an area where the proof's in the pudding. OSHA requires that you handle these cylinders and these containers safely, um, but there's no specific uh, training requirement per se. But but there's no way anyone can handle them safely either unless you do a little bit of training. So their rules are mostly uh, performant, kind of what you have to implement in the facility. Well, let's talk about handling for a minute. You know, when I used to sail freight to Alaska – it was pretty routine to have a, a sling with a, a bunch of hooks on it and just grab onto the valve caps on these things and lift them up. In retrospect, that's probably not such a great idea, but it was quick and convenient. Well, what do you have to say about handling? Well, you know, that, that uh, using the valve caps to lift cylinders is prohibited by the Compressed Gas Association pamphlet and then also uh, in the 1915 rules. So cylinders are supposed to um, be basically strapped down to a pallet or other kind of secure um, means or, or container or platform or, or rack um, to be lifted on board. You're not supposed to use choker slings, and you're not supposed to lift them with the valve caps. And what's interesting is, you know, by the time we're done talking about this today, Dan, there'll be maybe 
a dozen main rules. And really, if you follow those those 10 or 12 rules, uh, you're going to be probably, uh, you have a high likelihood of being safe with these containers. There, there aren't a ton of them, but you want to follow the ones there are because they're there for a good reason. So even since the 60s, we knew to not lift uh, these cylinders by their valve caps. But, you know, no person would know that unless someone told them at some point. Well, some of those rules, I don't think they made it all the way to Dutch Harbor. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately. So, well, maybe we should uh, go through some of those rules. Let's just take them one at a time. Give us a rundown. Well, uh, when you're putting cylinders on your vessel or, or moving them into your facility, they need to be secured, uh, like we just talked about. Um, strapped down to a pallet, hoisted aboard, or, or you, a forklift takes them to where they need to go. Um you're not supposed to store compressed gas cylinders on their sides. They need to be upright. So you can put them on their sides in order to move them, but you want to have them stored upright wherever they they end up being. And there's um, that seems kind of silly. You might wonder why. But um, some some compressed gases are liquefied, and most of the cylinders we deal with, if they're above 150 pounds or so, are going to have safety relief valves or rupture discs to relieve pressure. And they're designed really to vent from the vapor part of the space, not the liquid part. So when you store a liquefied gas on its side, you're going to impede that safety relief um, by having the liquid lay right against the valve. The other thing that would happen is with acetylene, interesting thing is acetylene cylinders aren't empty when they're empty. The cylinders themselves are packed with a porous material, and then after that, they're filled with acetone. And then the acetylene is put into the acetone and dissolved in the acetone for storage. So acetone is a flammable liquid. Um, if you have it on its side and then you go to start welding, you'll probably get acetone out of the torch because the acetylene hasn't had time to bubble up to the top of the cylinder. So some people who have welded or cut it, cut with the acetylene cylinders um, would have probably seen liquid come out of their torch, and that's because the cylinders have not been stored upright. So it's really important to store those things uh, in an upright position. The other thing with cylinders to remember is that the valve on the top is really the, the weak link. Um, so the valve could snap off. Let's say the cylinder falls over, um, and it, it maybe uh, the valve hits against a rail or something. Um, that's a worst-case scenario because you could have 2,000 pounds or more of pressure in that cylinder. So if that, if that valve were to snap off, it would make that cylinder a rocket. And these types of cylinders have been known to go through brick walls. Um, I've seen one blow off of a life raft, a little CO2 cylinder myself, and I almost jumped overboard to get away from it because the thing was skating across the deck uh, back and forth uh, basically denting the bulwarks on a crab boat. So these things become incredibly dangerous propelled missiles if you break that cylinder off. So the valve cap has to remain in place whenever you're not using that cylinder. The cylinder has to be secure, um, and you got to protect that, protect that valve because that is definitely uh, the, the weak part of the cylinder. Well, so, back when I was in high school, it's almost embarrassing to tell this story. But back when I was in high school, me and my friends... We went out uh, shooting in a gravel yard outside of Seattle, quite a ways outside of Seattle. And one of the things that we took with us was a 15-pound CO2 fire extinguisher. And we thought that that would just be the most fun to shoot at. And so we, we lined it up 
we had a little uh, impromptu firing squad. We were going to execute the CO2 cylinder. <laughs> and one of us ended up putting a round through the bottle just below the neck. And that thing took off straight up in the air, and then it spun around about 15 feet above the ground like a 4th of July flower before it came to ground. We should have parked the cars a ways down the road. We could have all died. How crazy stupid was that? But there's a, a first-hand visual Mythbusters example of exactly what happens when you put a hole in one of those cylinders. Oh, yeah. So, you know, pressure is, is really only the first problem, and it's a big problem. So we make sure the cylinders are in good shape. Uh, you don't want any rusting or pitting because they could get weakened and just fail because of that pressure, too. So we want to keep the cylinders in good shape, protect them from damage, um, keep those valve caps on, keep them secure. All those things are designed to make sure that the pressure problem doesn't escape and become a real hazard Uh in the workplace. Or even when they're not flammable or, or compressed liquids like uh, SEVA bottles. And we teach everybody when we're doing firefighting training, if you've got bottles that aren't in the SEVA rack, that they need to be on their side specifically so that they don't get knocked over and then break that valve. But, it's, but in those cases, it's not a use problem to have them on their side. No, it's just, it's just a compressed gas. It's not a liquefied issue. And they should be, a lot of times those manufacturers, I'm sure you've seen it on some of those SCBA bottles, um, they make them rounded on the bottom. Um, so you can't even set them, set them up that way. Yeah, I've seen that. The Drager does, does that and a, a couple of others. All these, a lot of the older bottles have flat bottoms. Yeah, yeah, you bet. So, you know, a lot of the problems with compressed gases have been solved really at the manufacturer level. I mean, they make these cylinders really scook them. Um, they're, they're made well. They've learned from people's mistakes over the last century. Um, they, you know, so if you follow a few basic rules, you're going to be in pretty good shape. So, but you mentioned flammability, Dan. And, and so now we have the pressure issue, which we talked about a little bit. And then you have the hazard of whatever is in there. So if you have a acetylene in there, that's, that has a huge flammable range. It's a highly flammable gas. It doesn't take much of an acetylene leak or acetylene plume to get started uh, or much of a spark to get it going. Um, another one is propane. I mean, so you have not only the hazard of the pressure, but you have, have the hazard of the material inside. And those are the flammable ones. Um, there are other ones that are toxic, um, like ammonia. Um, at high levels, anhydrous ammonia um, is it's stored as a compressed gas very commonly, and it is um, toxic at high levels. So, and then then there are other gases that just are inert, maybe, or um, just just pose asphyxiation hazards. So, like argon and nitrogen and carbon dioxide um, would all be examples of gases where they could seep out into a space and displace the oxygen. So, you know, these things are best stored outside, so that you don't have a buildup of flammable or toxic or asphyxiating gases in, in an interior space. So that's a, that's a whole nother area. If you're thinking about compressed gas safety, you want to keep uh, those hazards in mind. You want to think about what is in the cylinder itself. Something else to think about also, Dan, is, is you know, we, there's pressure hazards with compressed gases. There's the, the hazard of the material itself. And then there's another hazard. Sometimes gases are liquefied in a container, not just compressed. 
So with the, with the compressed gases, we have pressure, and with the liquefied gases, we have pressure. But another hazard that exists is when you have these liquefied gases is there is a material expands a lot from becoming a, a liquid to a gas. A liquid is actually a more compact form of matter. So, you know, in your barbecue cylinder, you'll have propane, and you can slosh it around. Have you ever done that where you can feel the liquid slopping in there? Oh, yeah, every time I get it refilled. Sure, it gets heavy, it's liquefied. Well, it's it's nice because propane liquefies easy. This is why it's so ubiquitous. Um, and we can store it, more of it, in a cylinder than if we just had it as a gas. So, and because its boiling point can be manipulated with pressure, um, it liquefies easily. But one of the specific hazards with liquefied gases is um, when you heat them up, its boiling point, you know, it's, it begins to boil and a gas is a lot less compact form of matter. So you have expansion. Um, so when some these liquefied compressed gases are involved in, let's say, a fire situation, or someone puts a torch to them to heat something up or to melt some frost on something, um, what you're going to have happen is the pressure in that cylinder is going to rise, and it's going to rise a lot. Um, propane, when it expands, uh, expands 270 times from a liquid to a gas. So if I have a cylinder of propane, I can fit 270 times more in it because it's a liquid. Well, it also works the other way. I start heating that up. I need a cylinder that's 270 times bigger in order to hold the same amount of propane. So obviously that cylinder is not going to stretch 270 times. So you'll have a safety relief valve, um, and there's going to be some point, if you're heating up that cylinder, the pressure in there is increasing, and there's going to be some point you're going to get a safety relief valve lift or, or a vessel rupture and even a, a, a blevy, a boiling liquid expanding vapor explosion. These are just fireballs that um, uh, you can find pieces of the cylinder, you know, a half a mile away. So liquefied compressed gases that are common are propane, ammonia, anhydrous ammonia used in refrigeration, uh, freons used in refrigeration. All of these vessels uh, or all of these cylinders can rupture in that way. So that adds a whole nother hazard to it. And you want to keep all cylinders away from heat sources and away from places where you think you would have a fire. Another good reason to keep them outside probably too, but where, where you can. Um, but something else to think about if, you're, if you want to handle gases safely in your workplace. And how about storage issues? You know, I think most of the time we tell people that these things need to be stored separate from other other materials. But when oxyacetylene rigs are, are set up, the oxygen and the acetylene are right next to each other. So um, how do we address those issues? Um, basically, if you're using the cylinder, using the cylinder so you have a pair, you have an acetylene cylinder and an oxygen cylinder, they can be together in a rack as long as they're hooked up to a regulator. That's not considered in storage. Um, but it would, if you have a spare one next to it or some with their valve cap still on, that would be considered in storage. So in the Compressed Gas Association pamphlets, it clearly states that if you have cylinders in storage, they have to be if oxygen and fuel gas cylinders, they call it. So whether it's acetylene or propane, whatever you're using for your cutting operation, they have to be separated by 20 feet or a five-foot wall 
to to uh, prevent fire from from uh, getting from one side to the other, which is kind of odd because you think, well, maybe five feet isn't tall enough. But nonetheless, that's what the rule is. So you have to have a five foot partition in between those cylinders or they have to be 20 feet apart. Um, and I guess uh, – Maybe a, a good way to think about this is maybe acetylene burns at about 2,000 degrees, uh, but when you add oxygen, it burns at about 4,000 degrees. So oxygen makes everything burn better, which is why it's used. So you're not going to cut metal very well with just acetylene. When you turn on that oxygen valve, it gets twice as good. Um, so that's the same thing if you had a fire in your workplace or you had something that happened with one of those cylinders you wouldn't want that disaster to spread and to get that much worse. You'd have an inferno on your hands if you had acetylene and oxygen, basically cylinders, you know, rupturing or venting at the same time. So they, they want you to keep those things separate. The other thing is they always have to be secured. Again, we're protecting that weak link of the valve um, from getting broken. We don't want the cylinder to get damaged either if it falls over. So they have to be protected from falling over. Um, and you wouldn't want to store these cylinders near exits or gangways or, you know, on a deck where the crane loads can take something out. So you don't want them on your exit routes in general, and you don't want them where they can be damaged. So all of those things are in the Compressed Gas Association pamphlet and in the OSHA rules. And it's just common sense with these kind of cylinders. There's also one interesting thing that happened on a boat is they had them stored uh, on a particular boat inside, um, right at the top of the stairs to the engine room. And they had an engine room fire, which is probably a likely place you're going to have a fire on a ship. And that deck underneath those cylinders heated up. And the acetylene cylinders had a fusible metal device that uh, basically melts at uh, 212 degrees. And so when those cylinders heated up, that fusible device melted and the entire contents of that acetylene cylinder were, were spewed out into that interior space. So you had the vessel fire team getting ready to go down and fight the engine room fire. And then you had these acetylene cylinders popping off like Roman candles, shooting flames 30 feet into the air in the space that they were going to use to go down to fight that fire. So it's a good thing that happened before they got in there. Um, so, again, if you can store them outside protected from damage, that's the best policy. On occasion, I see oxyacetylene rigs that, you know, people are putting away for the day, and they're going to come back and go back to work tomorrow, and they take the regulators off and put the caps on and think, you know, this is a safe thing, I'm, I'm doing the right thing, but they leave them right there in the wheeled cart. So that's, yeah. uh, that's not right, is it? No, if they're in the wheeled cart, it's supposed to be just close all the valves, um, and that, that should be enough um, for nighttime shutdown. Now, there's different rules in construction, and these do not apply to everyone else. But in construction, they say if you're not going to use them for 24 hours, then you have to take the whole thing apart and put those cylinders back in storage. So, But that 24-hour interpretation is only in the construction industry. So you think that most of the time, if I was coming off shift at the end of the day and I was going to go back to work tomorrow morning, that's not 24 hours, so it would be really about stopping at the end of the day on Friday and coming back for Monday. Right. Or or longer. You know, you use it for this part of the job. You're going to get a few more things done. It's going to take a couple of days, and then you're going to use it again. They, on construction sites, they want you to put that away. But 
on vessels, um, they'll often have a pair hooked up all the time because if they have some kind of shipboard emergency and they have to cut their net loose, um, you know, that's, that's uh, attached to the vessel with cables and they want to fire that thing up and cut that net loose if they have to in a big hurry. So uh, it's often on vessels, they're fishing vessels, they'll have a pair set up at all times, and that's uh, been fine. We've talked about the hazards. We've talked about handling rules and storage. What are, are there some rules around the actual use of these cylinders? Yeah, you know, especially in the shipyard standards, um, there's, some, there's some rules about uh, using these things, and there's some rules in the welding and cutting uh, parts of the OSHA requirements that we'll get to on another day. But, um, you know, it's it's often I've seen this throughout my career is you need somebody to weld and, and uh, you hire somebody and you're like, can you weld? And they say yes. And you say, OK, great. And you kind of let them do it, do it. And you don't know if they learned from their their dad in their garage at home or a guy in the shop or went to a community college or whatever. And, and in any of those cases, maybe they they uh, taught that person a lot of the handling and safety rules about welding, um, and maybe they didn't. So there isn't a specific training requirement for employers, but um, an employer might want to look, if they're interested in having a really safe workplace, they might want to look at you know their welders um, and talk to them about, about safe handling. Because you're assuming a lot when you're assuming that just because you know how to weld that you know everything else about safely handling these things. So something else to think about in that in that regard. I guess one other thing I want to mention, Dan, is um, you know we have these compressed gas rules uh, in the pamphlet, and we have some in the shipyard standards. There are some other ones in the OSHA standards. So I don't want to leave the long, wrong impression, but uh, there are some for anhydrous ammonia, but it doesn't apply to refrigeration systems, and there are some for manifolding uh, acetylene and, and oxygen. So there are some specific to big systems in the general industry standards. They don't apply to most of the people I work with um, because they're, they apply to certain types of specific systems. Um, but there are some other ones in there that if you have a system with manifolds and uh, 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 anyway, you'd want to look at the scope of those standards to see if there's anything that applies to you. Okay, great. Well, the last thing I might want to mention is that for those of you who are really interested in compressed gases and ensuring that you actually do have a safe work list, the checklist for compliance in the back of Chapter 8 in the OSHA handbook is a really great place to start. So I would refer to that if you don't have a copy of the OSHA handbook, uh, certainly go pick one up. Anything else in closing, Amy? I think we're all set. Thanks, Dan. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Spot on Safety. If you would like to ask a question or leave a comment, you can email us. The address is spotonsafety at iworklife.com.